0: to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Let's pray. How about that? It's a good place to start. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. This is the day, isn't it, Lord? Along with every other day, to give you glory and praise, Lord. We ask specifically this morning as we've gathered together here in fellowship with one another that we would be in fellowship with you as we open up your word. Would you prepare our hearts this morning, Lord, to hear from you? We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Love is one of those words over time, especially to us in the English language, that has just kind of been watered down and and misused. Now, that's not to say that the word love, like we shouldn't say, or that I'm that I'm implying that we maybe overuse the word love or use it too quickly, but that it gets misused at times. Like, let me give you an example, so you know what I'm talking about. Maybe maybe you've heard this, dude. Have you ever had Have you ever been to Culvers? Oh man, I love that place. Do you? Do you love Culvers? I love my wife, I love my children, I love my family, and I love culvers. Could I possibly do I love culvers? And do I love my wife? Obviously, I love one more than the other. <laughs> culvers? No, I mean. Not Culver's. It can get a little bit confusing. You know, we, we have one word, love. We have one word, and we try to rep- use it in appropriate it in several different ways. In Greek, they have four words for love. This is really important. There are four different words in Greek for love. The, worst, the, the first word um, for love in Greek that we're going to talk about is phileo. Phileo is love between friends that you find in a friendship. Um, It's the word that they kind of derive the name of Philadelphia for. Philadelphia. Phileo. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Okay, so there's a a Greek word meaning phileo or love in a friendship type of a way. Now, there's another Greek word, storge. Storge. And storge is the kind of love, it's similar to phileo, but it is friendship within, uh, I mean, uh, it's love within a family relationship, like a sibling, a brother, a sister, a parent even. Storge, that's the word for love. Um, there's another one, and this is the, the love that's more of an intimate, physical kind of love between a husband and wife, and that word is eros. Um, and you can think of the word that we've derived in English from eros as kind of, is the word erotic. All right, so eros is the kind of physical, intimate love between uh, a husband and a wife. It's different than phileo, and it's different than storge. But then there's a fourth word for love, and that fourth word is agape. Agape is what I always think of it as kind of like God's love or Christ-like love. It means selfless, unconditional love. In John three sixteen, where it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that word love there is agape. It's saying that God uh, loved the world so selflessly and so unconditionally that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins so that we might be forgiven. He agape loved us, selfishly, unconditionally loved us. In John's gospel, in chapter 21, after Jesus is resurrected and he comes back and he's kind of meeting with his disciples, he gets Peter to the side. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, tend my sheep. Third time he says, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter, you almost get the sense that Peter's like, come on, two times I already see you ask me three times now. Yes, yes, I love you. But here's the interesting part about that. The first two times that Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? He says, Peter, do you agape love me? Peter, do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me selflessly? And you know what Peter says? Lord, I love you like a brother. See, Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you, right? Jesus says, do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me selflessly? And Peter says, I love you like a brother, Lord. Twice. Jesus says two times, do you agape me? Two times, Peter says, I phileo, I brotherly. We're brothers, Lord. We're brothers. But Jesus is looking for something deeper, from Peter. He's saying, Peter, you're going to go on and you're going to lead for a while and you're going to be a a pillar. I need you to see, do you love me unconditionally, selflessly? The third time that Jesus says, do you love me? He actually uses the word phileo that third time. He says, do you love me like a brother? And Peter says, I do. I love you like a brother, Lord. And so we see that in the Greek language, they don't kind of have the same struggle that we do in English when we use the word love in times of what kind of love are we talking about? Do you love me like a brother? Do you love me like a friend? Or do you love me like you love Culver's? Nobody loves Culver's. I like to go there sometimes, very seldomly. <laughs> but when I do go, I enjoy it. But I don't love it. It's important because as we go through, and we're going to see word, the word love here and stuff, and it's, um, it's good to know which words that we're talking about as we go. So I'll kind of make that clear as we go through it this morning. So this morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 7. That's kind of where we left off last week. So John is writing here. Remember, he's writing to the church. He's trying to... Um, correct some heresies that have come into the church, but he's reminding them, remember kind of the main focus was just because you say you're a follower of Christ doesn't mean you are one. In order to be a follower, follower of Christ, you must follow Christ, right? You can't just say I am and then not follow because you're lying. Like I could say I'm an NBA athlete But I don't actually play basketball. So am I what I said I was? No. But if I said I was an NBA athlete, and then next weekend you saw me actually on the court playing basketball in the NBA, you could say, oh that guy is what he said he was because look what he's doing. And that is kind of what John is saying. It's like those who love me and say they know me and have fellowship with me will do the things that I've told them to do and they will follow after me. If not, they're in the dark. He's going to come back to that again. Here he says in verse 7, Brethren, I write to you no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Now, Okay, let me just tell you what I believe he's talking about. And maybe you don't agree, and that's okay. You can come and talk to me later, and I'll explain to you why you're wrong. But what this is saying when he says, I write to you no new commandment. He's saying that the commandment to love... You've always had from the beginning. In fact, if he goes all the way back to when they first received the law, remember in, in Exodus chapter 20, where God speaks to them from Mount and he gives them the, the two tables or tablets of the law, um, we had, you know, they were supposed to um, not have any other idols. In fact, really what it was saying was love God and only God. And uh, the first four or the first table of the law was your relationship with God. And then the second tablet or table of the law was your relationship with people, everybody else. right? So your relationship with God and your relationship with people. In fact, what it was kind of saying was love God and you'll do these things. Love people and you'll do these things. Jesus will later summarize that. Um, in Matthew, when the Pharisees will come to him and a lawyer will come to Jesus and will say, because uh, it says he's trying to trick him, and it says, uh, he'll say, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Like, they're, they're kind of thinking, oh, if we could get him to say one commandment. This is the greatest one. they are be like, ha ha, they're all the greatest commandments. Gotcha. But so what they say is, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And so Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all of the law and the prophets. And Jesus literally summarizes the two tables of the law, or the Ten Commandments, in those two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do those two things, then you will be doing the Ten Commandments, because... If you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind, you will not have idols. You will not worship other gods. You will have a relationship with him that is proper and in order. And if you then also love your neighbor as yourself, you will not lie to them. You will not steal from them. You will not murder them. You won't covet their wife or anything else they have. And so you will do those. He says love is the answer here. If you love God and love your neighbor, you, you will have done the, the tables of love. This is not new to them. So there are those people, I'm sure no one here, um, but out there maybe, who will hear and say, oh, love, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Ha-ha, loophole, because I hate myself. <laughs> and if I hate myself and I'm supposed to love my neighbor as much as I love myself and I hate myself, then I can hate my neighbor. Ha-ha, loophole. Excellent. You know what the word says? No one hates their own flesh. The Bible says, you don't hate yourself. You don't hate yourself. You're here, you're clothed, you're fed. We love ourselves. That is why he said that. However, Jesus is very clever. I think Jesus realized that there would be some that would say, no, no, I hear what you're saying, but I know what the Bible says, but I really, I don't like myself at all. I don't like myself. So Jesus says, all right, Love one another as I have loved you. Oh, loophole gone. And really what he says is, guess what word he uses in that situation? Which love word? Agape. Love love one another, agape one another, as I have agaped you. And how did he agape us? Selflessly, unconditionally. That is how we are to love one another doesn't matter if you love yourself then. It, you love him. You love one another as Jesus has loved you. That's the, that, that is what they had been taught for, uh, since the Ten Commandments all the way up to this point now where Jesus says this. When he says, um, love one another as I have loved you, he actually says these words, a new commandment I give you. Right? So he's like, you've known love your neighbor and or love your brother and and uh um, love God. But here's the new commandment, Jesus would say, here's the new commandment: love one another as I have loved you. And that's what John is saying: is this isn't this isn't new information to you. But in verse 8 he says, again, a new commandment I do write to you. He's like, I write to you no new commandment. And then the next verse he says, a new commandment I write to you. <laughs> Come on, John. <laughs> This is what he's saying. The word new in verse 8 isn't necessarily new like it's a new thing. It means afresh. The same thing afresh. Here's an example. Let's say you have a favorite shirt. You wear it all the time, and it's comfortable. You love how you look at it. It's great. And every time you wear it, you get home, you take it off, you put it back on the hanger, and you put it in your closet. And you just—that's how that shirt is to you. But then one day, your wife says you have to put it in the laundry, even though it's not dirty, really. So you reluctantly take it off the hanger and you put it in the laundry. This is hypothetical. This really—this this doesn't happen. When you take it out of the laundry, it's the same shirt, but you go, "Ah, oh, it smells good and it's fresh. Same shirt, but fresh." And you put it on, you're like, oh, yeah, this is good. And that's the sense that we're talking about right here. It is not a new commandment to love, but it is a fresh commandment to do it in the way that Jesus, in the same words, Jesus used the same words, a new commandment I give you, the sense that don't just love them how you love yourself, love them how I would love you, which is selflessly a new commandment. Because, and why can you do this? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And so what he's saying is in the life of the believer, as you are being sanctified, as you are becoming more and more like Christ, more and more of the light, the darkness is passing away, which allows you to be able to love people selflessly. Your brothers and your sisters, you can then love selflessly. As you become more like Christ, you are able to love more. Or like Christ. Does that make sense? So you should be seeing that happen in your life as you progress in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You become more able to love your brothers and your sisters selflessly as he loved you. That's what John is saying here. In verse 9, it says, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. All right, I want to point something out here. He says who hates his brother. The word brother means fellow Christian. Okay? So he's talking about fellow Christians. In this particular section right now, he's not talking about the people in the world at large. He's saying you can't say that you hate your fellow Christian and then claim to be a Christian because then the light isn't in you, you're in darkness. Now, you may think, okay, well, then God is saying, oh, I really only have to love other Christians. I don't have to love the people out there in the world. But here's really what it's saying is, if you can't love your fellow Christian, how will you ever love those who aren't Christians? Start there. That's where you have to get to is say, like, I can love my brother and my sister within the church selflessly, Because if I can't do that, I'm never going to be able to get outside the church and love the way I'm supposed to love. The other word here that's interesting is hate. Again, um, it's been translated hate. In Greek, it means love less. All right. So it's not quite as harsh as hate. He's saying whoever loves their brother less, well, loves them less than what? Loves them less than what we've been instructed to by God or less than how Jesus loved you. That's what he's saying. How whoever loves their brother or sister in Christ less than how Christ loved you, or at least you're trying to, right? Because we're not Jesus. We're not perfect. We're in the process of sanctification but um, that's, that's what he's talking about. Uh, whoever loves them less than what we are supposed to do, um, the dark uh, is in darkness until now. But he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Abides in remember we talked about abides means to remain or stay or have fellowship with. He says that he who loves his brother loves, agape loves his brother. Has fellowship with the light. It's an indication. Remember, a lot of these things are saying, well, remember we talked about James's verse that says, faith without works is dead. And, and it wasn't James saying, this is the formula. He was saying, this is my observation. A life. That is filled with works is the indication of a believer. The works is not what makes you a believer. And so we're looking at uh, some observations and he's saying that, you know, the observation is that one who loves his brother or sister is in the light, has fellowship in the light. He who loves his brother abides, stays, remains, has fellowship in the light. What's the light? We talked about this, right? It says, God is light. There is no darkness in him. Remember, God is light. Darkness is the absence of that light or the absence of God. So to have fellowship with the light is to have fellowship with God. And that is what we talked about quite a bit in the last two chapters. This is understanding of fellowship with God and fellowship with fellow believers is uh, a main goal here. Fellowship, close communion with one another. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness The word darkness here, you know, it means spiritual darkness. It's not literal darkness. I'm sure you're all smart enough to realize that that John isn't writing about literal darkness, but spiritual darkness. But if you think about it, when he uses an illustration like darkness or strength, what we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, it helps us to kind of visualize what he's talking about. Imagine um, you're trying to find your way around in a room that's completely dark. Anything that's in your way, you will stumble over. Um, you cannot get out of the way. You cannot navigate a path around it if you can't see, if you're in the darkness. You may want to hold, you know, go and, and hug your brother, but if you're in the darkness, you're going to miss him. You'll probably end up hugging the lamp because You're in darkness. You're stumbling around in darkness. he who hates his brother, that person who does not love his Christian brother or sister, is in the darkness? John writes. This is hard. This is hard stuff, honestly, right? Because, like, it's hard sometimes to love people. I once heard said Christianity would be easy if it weren't for all the Christians. What makes it so hard? What makes loving one another, especially within the church, what about even in this room? What makes loving each other so hard? Sin? Us? Us? Right? You know, think about when you get angry at somebody. What, do you ang- what makes you angry? Or what makes you frustrated? Or like someone hurts your feelings? Or someone does treat you in a way that you don't feel like you deserve, or doesn't treat you in a way that you feel like you do deserve. And you get upset, or you get, you get angry, and you're like, I can't believe they said that to me. Or I can't believe they didn't say that to me. You, you can't win. <laughs> it's like... God said, look, and we look to other people in the room, in, in, in fellowship, um, and we say, well, what do they have to offer me that I should love them? I mean, do we have anything in common? Is there anything about us that's the same? Maybe, maybe I would look to a, a, a someone in this room and I say, well, they like to go to Culver's and they like to watch football and they like to do the things that I like to do. And so because we have these things in common, I like them, therefore I can love them. But what I'm doing is I'm looking at them and I'm saying, they have something to offer me, therefore we're friends and we like them. But do you know what agape love is? Agape love says God loved you not because of who you are, but because of who he is. That's where he's trying to get us to. So I'm going to look around the room and say, I love you not because we have anything in common maybe, not because you're nice to me, or not because you send me gift cards to Culver's, (laughs) but because I love you, because... Jesus loved me unconditionally. Jesus loved me selflessly, so I will love you selflessly. (laughs) Boy, a lot of you, at the 11 o'clock, people are going to be texting me afterwards and be like, we're at Culver's right now. Just watch. (laughs) I have the power. But he who hates his brothers in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, John changes gears a little bit in this next section, this next three or four verses. So I'm going to read the whole thing, just kind of track with me. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who was from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. It feels a little repetitive when you read that, right? But... Um, there's some things in here that I want to I want to talk about. First of all, he's not talking about obviously age. He's not talking about actual little children, actual fathers necessarily, and young men in terms of age in their life. What he's talking about are different stages of uh, a Christian life or a Christian walk. So when he says little children, he's not talking about little children necessarily. He's talking about what that word actually means, little children, in this sense is new convert or a new believer. Now it's the same Greek word as that he starts off with the chapter where he says little children, but in that in the sense that he's saying, okay, um, here he's using it to mean dear ones to me, but here he's using the same word. But what he's saying is those who you are new to the faith, new converts. um, He's going to use that term. So he's he's going to talk to three different groups of people: new converts little children. He's going to talk to fathers, um, and again, doesn't necessarily mean fathers, and it doesn't only just mean men. It means that those who have been walking with the Lord for a great deal of time, um, or, or have reached a level of maturity in their walk with the Lord. And then young men are those folks who are in their um, faith walk, Somewhere in between a new convert and someone who has reached a, uh, a level of maturity, he's calling them young men. So those are the, the three groups that he's talking about um, in terms of their, their faith or their understanding and their, relation, their understanding of their relationship with Jesus. But one of the things that I think is neat, and so what I did, I, kinda, I color-coded them in my Bible to group them together. So verse, you know, where he, the two places where he talks about little children, I'm going to read those together. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for, for his namesake. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. Uh, There's a couple of words that help understand what it is exactly that he's talking about. When he says, little children, because I write to you because your sins are forgiven you, are, you for his namesake. The word forgiven in that, in that verse in Greek, it actually means sent away. Right? So he says, little children, I write to you because, you, to, really he's saying, I'm writing to remind you that your sins have been sent away for his namesake. So, I mean, that is so clear to me. The most important thing that a new believer needs to grasp and hold and understand is that they have been forgiven. They've been forgiven. If you're a new believer here, you need to grasp this. If you're an old believer, you need to grasp this. Your sins have been forgiven. Your sin, remember we talked about the different words from sin, sin versus sins and the idea that sin, meaning the sin that you were born with that causes you to need a savior in order to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven and be in the presence of God, that Jesus went to the cross and he died for the sins of the whole world, the Bible said. The, the, the sin that we all needed to be forgiven of. And you have to understand and I heard one other Bible teacher say this, your sin is not forgiven by degree, but by decree. You understand? You're not forgiven of your sin over time because you've done something. That, you know, God's like, oh, you're almost there. You're almost there. Jesus said, I went to the cross and died for your sin. It's not by, dec- by degree, but by decree, meaning he declared it. You are forgiven. And what we kind of talked about, but we have sins that we commit that separate us in terms of fellowship from God that we then ask for forgiveness for, we confess, and he forgives us. But as a new believer, maybe that's something that you need to be reminded of. You are forgiven. Why? Why? It's the second part of that. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. So let's put them together. Little children, because your sin, I write to you because your sins are forgiven because you have known the Father. How are your sins forgiven? Because you were good? Because you worked at it? Or because you were introduced to Jesus? And Jesus said, I've forgiven your sin. It's forgiven. You're cleansed. John feels like it's very important to remind new converts, new believers of this concept. Your sin has been forgiven. And he says, I write to you, fathers. And again, forgiven here means sent away. Isn't that a cool idea? Like, like he you was know, like, um, I had sin, but then I said, Lord, would you forgive me of my sins? And he's like, All right, I got these. And for some of you, it's like, <laughs> I got these, and I'm gonna. Send them away. I'm going to cast them into the sea. I'm going to separate you from them as far as the east is from the west. They were sent away. He says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. Again, I have written to you fathers because you have known him who was from the beginning. Now, I mean, is John just like losing his mind? Did he lose his place? Did he he write that first part and and then got distracted I'm like oh yeah, fathers, I'm writing to you. I, no, see here, it's for emphasis. When things are repeated in the Bible, like they didn't have like exclamation points. They, had re- they would repeat what it is that they wrote. And so for the sake of emphasis, he's repeating himself here. And it's so cool because what he's saying is those who, of you who are mature in your faith and your understanding of your relationship with Jesus Christ, that is an amazing thing. I write to you because you have known him who is from the beginning. Do you know that uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, would write this. He's recounting who he was and many of the things that he had done. Um, like He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees and he was circumcised on the eighth day and he was zealous for the for the church, not the Christian church, but for the, the um, church, and he says, yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. At, really, Paul, at the end of his life, he comes to a place and he says, you know what, everything that I did is fine and good, um, but the most important thing is that I know Jesus, and I'm just going to rest in the fact that I know him. Because it is truly coming from that place that you know him that everything else comes. He says, fathers, I'm writing to you, you who are the fathers, you who are the ones who are mature in your walk, to remind you that you're mature because you know the father. The third group, he says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong in the word and the the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Young men, young men. He's talking about believers who are in the middle of this uh, walk that we're all in, the middle of it. And he said that you are strong. And you have overcome the wicked one because the word of God abides in you. Now, you know, because you're all really smart, that John isn't literally talking about physical strength. However, it is a very good illustration of what he's talking about. If you want to be physically strong, what must you do? You have to go to the gym and you have to lift weights That's how you build muscle. That's how you get strong. You go and you work out, and you lift weights, and you build muscle, and you get huge, huge. <laughs> but you can't go once a week to the gym and lift weights and get muscles, can you? No, you can't. Trust me. <laughs> you can't go to the gym once a week and, because you get in there and you're like, mm-hmm, look at all the weight. And, uh, you know, you think you've got a lot of weight going, and you get off the machine, and some other guy comes over and he goes. <laughs> and you're like, okay, uh, you, you can't go once a week. you got to go regularly, and it's hard. It's a discipline, isn't it? It's a discipline. Any of you who actually go to the gym and lift weights, um, it's a discipline that you have to commit to. The other thing is it's not just... Lifting weights and exercise that makes you strong. What else? Culver's. (laughs) You have to eat a healthy diet. You cannot go to the gym once a week and Culver's the other seven (laughs) and expect to be strong, right? You're going to be weak, weak, weak. And see, this is what John is talking about, is that they're strong because the word abides in them. Now, what I'm really saying is go home and get a really big Bible so that you're just always like, <sighs> no, no. See, they were strong because the word abided in them, right? They were in the word. Now, you know, following all along the same analogy, um, can you come here and open up your Bibles with me once a week and then go off the rest of the week? And can you go uh, from here and eat junk food every single day and expect that you're going to grow strong in your relationship with Christ? The answer is no. 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 You won't be strong. And as a result, you won't be able to overcome the wicked one. You need discipline and a uh, workout routine that involves the word daily and, uh, and a healthy diet of the word and prayer and fellowship. You need all of that. You want all of that, I'm telling you. Could you ever talk to anybody who actually does? It's not me, but people who do go to the gym like every single day and they're like, today's leg day. You know, and they're like... So I feel like I should go in and get and, and tear the sleeves off my t-shirt and get my gallon jug of water and walk around. And so I pick things up, I put them down. <laughs> but those people who are there every day. They will say that there's like a a lifter's high that comes over. No longer is it that they have to go to the gym. They want to go. They can't wait to go. It's like the thing that they do. Um, And and that's what he wants for us. It's not like, I can't, I gotta do my devotion today. It's like, I can't wait to get at it. What does the Lord want to say to me today? Now, here's the other thing. I'm back at the gym. Here's the thing. You can't just go to the gym and and put on muscle and then not do anything with it. Do you ever those are the guys and the ladies that are at the gym and they're just like and they're going and they're like doing this and then what do they do with all that muscle? Pose. This is what they're this is, why they're go- this is why they're working out. I work out so I can get these huge muscles, so I can go like this. <laughs> they're posers. <laughs> if you're going to the gym and you're working out and putting on all this muscle, go out and lift a car off of somebody. Do something with it. If you're just going and putting on muscle just so that you could pose, <sighs> it's no good it's no good see they were strong and what did they do as a result of being strong they were able to overcome the wicked one man going to the gym later (laughs) Whew. So then he says this, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. So the word love here is actually, it means take pleasure in. This particular word isn't one of the four words, but it got translated love. But what it means is do not take pleasure in the world. And what you have to understand, when John writes about the world, he's not talking about the earth. He's not talking about the water and the trees and the animals and things like that. He's not saying that you can't love the earth. In fact, what the Lord did was he created the entire earth and he gave it over to man and he said, here you go. Have dominion over, but be good stewards of it also. And then he's going to say, but understand that it's going to pass away at some point, And I'm going to replace it later on. So don't become obsessed, but be good stewards. But that's not the word that he's talking about here, the world. He's talking about, this it literally means the worldly affairs, or the affairs, or the things that this world, the people on it, care about most. Don't take pleasure in the things that the humanity on this globe take the most pleasure in or care the most about. If anyone loves the worldly affairs, the love of the Father is not in. What he's saying is, look at your life and say, and you have to understand, John isn't accusing anybody of any of this in this chapter, in this letter. He's not accusing them. He's warning them, okay? He's saying this is what is going on or can happen. Don't get wrapped up in this. Because he's writing to, we already know who, believers, little children, new converts, people who are mature in their faith, and the people who are working out, in, working out the faith and their relationship with Christ he is talking to those people. So he's not necessarily saying, you're falling in love with the world, but you've got people who are coming in and trying to bring these, false, these uh, false religions or heresies. So he's saying, don't be sucked into being wrapped up with the worldly affairs that are going on around you. Why? Because the danger is that you'll be so wrapped up in those things that you will not have any time for what we just talked about. In fact, you'll become more about that. And Jesus will say it himself, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two masters. People are like, well, can I have my religion and my life separate? I mean, can't can't I, like, I go to church on Sunday, but then, you know, Saturday night line dancing. You know, not that there's anything wrong with line dancing. (laughs) You cannot serve both. What he says is, you will end up loving one and hating the other. The fact is, which one will you love and which one will you hate, even if you're trying to balance that? You're going to love the one that's easiest and most fun, right? Think about it. If you're sitting there and you're not one of those like, I love working out, it's my thing, but you just know you ought to, right? And you've got, well, I could go to the gym, Or I could eat pizza. Well, the eating pizza one, it gives me more pleasure and it's more fun. So I'm going to tend to do that one. But I can't do both. I can't be healthy and eat junk food. I can't do both. So what's happening is what he'll say is you'll love one and hate the other. And so you're going to tend to be like, well, I'm just going to be all about the junk food and healthy. There's probably a pill. You know, there's no pill. And so he says, do not love the affairs of this world. Don't get wrapped up in it. Don't become so obsessed with it that it is your main focus. In fact, it says in Romans, though, that we are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We have to be in it. We're here. It's all around us. We're in it. We're not supposed to go off into the wilderness and live uh, a nomadic hermit-style life, the monastic. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to be in fellowship. We're supposed to be in fellowship in the world, but we're not supposed to be of the world. That means what the world is, what the people in the world are about, we're not about. But we're here. Why are we here anyway? Why does God have us here? Why do you think, why am I here? Why are you here in the world? Well, don't we have the light inside of us and aren't we supposed to let that light shine to those around us everybody else is stumbling around in the dark isn't that what the word says aren't we the ones that maybe are supposed to hand somebody a flashlight and say come out of the dark man come into the light how would they know unless someone tells them how can they believe if someone unless someone tells them the truth isn't that what the word says that's why we're here gang We're not here to get wrapped up and entangled in the affairs of the world. We're here to be the light of Christ to those around us. Uh, It says here, uh, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. (laughs) The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what the world is working off of. Right? Right? The the reason the world is working off of these is because the prince and the power of this world, Satan, those are his three main tools. He's got a a club with... uh, He's got a bag with three clubs in it, basically. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he has those three tools, but he's really good with those three clubs. Really good. In fact, we see it come out a few times in the Bible. Um, I'm going to turn over in um, Genesis where it says that uh, the serpent came to Eve in the garden. And there's Eve, and she's tending the garden. Um, And it's, you know, an absolute perfect day, every single day in the garden, I believe it. And there she is, and she's tending the garden. She's already been told not to eat of a specific tree. God told Adam, Adam told Eve, don't eat of this tree. So here comes Satan in the form of the serpent, and it says that he said, did God really say that you will die when you eat of this tree. Now, did God say that? He did, actually. But what Satan does is he comes in and he starts to plant these little seeds of doubt. Did he really say that you would die? And so he he said, for God knows that if you eat it, your eyes are going to be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And she's like, ooh, I could be like God. So in verse 6 it says, but when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... That it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit. You see right there what that says? It's the three tools that I just talked about. When she saw that the tree was good for food, lust of her flesh. That's going to be good to eat. I'm going to eat that, whatever kind of fruit that is. That it was pleasant to the eyes, that was, that it looked beautiful to her, that was the, the lust of her eyes, and that it would make one wise. The pride of life. See, he used his three tools right there on Eve, and that caused sin to be able to enter into the world. There was another instance that we see Satan trying to use these three tools. It's when Jesus is out in the wilderness, and it says that he was out there for 40 days, and um, by that time, he was really hungry. Um, and you know, if you've ever been hungry, apparently, um, if, you, if you don't eat for 15 days, um, your appetite goes away. I wouldn't know. <laughs> I wouldn't know what happens if you don't eat after 15 days. Um, but apparently, that's what happens. And then, what happens is, after that, once you're hungry again, that is the signs of starvation that your body is now eating itself to stay alive. And so, Jesus, is there's is 40 days, and it says that he was hungry. And that's when Satan comes to him and he says, If. You are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. Man, oh man, he's just like, he knows. Does Satan know? He knows. But he's like to Jesus in a weakened, hungry state. If you are the Son of God, why don't you use all your divine power and make these stones into bread? Oh, it would be so delicious. You're hungry, Jesus. Just use your divine power and make these stones into bread, and then you can feast on the bread. You know what Jesus says? It is written. Every time, by the way, every time he answers back, Satan, it is written. He goes to the word because, you know, Jesus, although he was hungry, he was strong because the word abided in him, right? But he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by the, every word, by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Do you know that if you haven't eaten anything in 40 days if you were to eat bread, do you know what happened? You'd die. You would die. Your body after 40 days can't handle solid food like that. So even though it seems like Satan it was saying, you know what, Jesus, I feel for you. Just use some of your power and, and make these stones in the bread and then eat these bread. Something that seemed good would have killed uh, a person. You know, Satan does that you know, he tries to make it seem like the thing that he's offering you is good. And he's like, look, I'm on your side. You know, like in the movies, they make it seem like he's trying to make some kind of a deal with you. Um, you know that song the, by Charlie Daniels, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, and he made like a deal with Johnny, and they're like, hey. And he's like, oh, you know, let's have a little fiddle contest. And if I win, I get your soul. But if you win, you get this fiddle of gold. And so they're like, and they do this contest, and Johnny wins. And Satan is like honorably handing over the, yeah, that's not Satan. You know what Satan would do? You're not getting it. I lied. Ha ha. You can, I don't care if you want, I'm keeping my fiddle of gold. I lied. Guess what? That's what I do. I lie. I'm the father of lies. There's nothing honorable in, the, in Satan. He doesn't want anything good for you. If it seems like he's offering something good for you, trust me, it's not good for you. He wants to destroy you. Jesus says, you're not to live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know what's really, really interesting about that? Jesus could have said, you know what? I am the son of God bread 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 Satan your bread turns everything to bread. Bread, I could do whatever I want because I am the son of God. But what he says is man does not live by bread alone. What he's saying is I don't have to be the son of God to beat you Satan. All I have to do is be a man in which the word of God abides. Can I get an amen on that. All right. I love that. I never saw that before this week. I never thought about that. He says no man does not live on bread alone. Man, humans, you all need only have the word of God abiding in you. You don't have to be the son of God. The world operates on these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're not to be tripped up by those things. We're not to be about those things. Those are the things of the world. Those are the world's systems. It says in verse 17, and the, but the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Passing away right there. Um, if you look this up, it does mean literally passing away, but it can also mean um, lead away or mislead. So now listen, and the world is leading you away. The, the worldly affairs Will lead you away, is what John is saying in that, or mislead you. It will mislead you. It will make you think the things that are important aren't important, or the things that aren't important are. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. The world system, the worldly affairs will make you start to think that the things that aren't important are and that they demand all of your attention. They deserve they need all of your worry, all of your resources. And he would say, "No, there, that's leading you astray. It's leading you. It's misleading you." He says, "He who does the will of God abides forever." <clears throat> Little children, in the last hour, the, it, it is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists have come, by the, which we know that this is the last hour. John believed that at this time, at this moment, that they were in the last times. And, and we say, oh, it's the end times. And maybe it was the end times from that moment until it hasn't happened yet. Like, we're all in the end times, possibly. I mean, why would we think that God has said, no, it's only a one-year period? or it's, Time does not exist to God. It exists to us. This is that he stands outside of time. But I think more to the point is that God has created Every generation with a sense that they are living in the end. They did believe that Jesus was coming back in their life. They believed it. They believed he went away. He went up to heaven. He said he's going to come back. He's going to come back in our lifetime. That's what they believed. And guess what? He didn't. And then the next generation believed that they were in the last time, that Jesus was going to come back, and he didn't. And then the next generation believed, and the next, and the next, and the next. I believe that God has created in every generation that belief that he is coming back in their generation. Why? Why would he do that? Because it creates a sense of excitement and urgency in your walk to say it could be at any moment. What will I do with the time that I have left? I don't know how much time I have left, so what will I do with it? (laughs) Now, obviously, they were all wrong, and we're right, because Jesus is coming back in our time. (laughs) And maybe he will. Maybe he will. I mean, if you think about it, just in terms of time, we're closer than they were. But I don't know if he's going to come back. I don't know. And you can, you can you know, email me later and show me all the prophecies that point to like it's next year or look at this or look at Russia and look at China. I don't know. But if you're going to come to me and say, well, prophecy says this and this and this, my question to you is, is that causing you to live a life of urgency when it comes to sharing the gospel with those who you know don't know? Because if it's not, it's not doing you any good. Prophecy is fun, but if it doesn't drive you to take the gospel out to those who've not heard it, then it's just information. Every generation thought that they were the generation when Jesus was going to come back. And so far, they've all been wrong. And maybe in a hundred years from now, they're going to think, they thought they were the ones, but clearly we are. I don't know. I don't know. But is it causing you to live with an urgency to spread the gospel? That's the real question. They went out, he says, that uh, the spirit, oh, so he says the Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have come. Do you understand, like, they had an understanding of the Antichrist, and I actually think that this might be the first place in the New Testament where the word Antichrist is used, um, but they knew that someone was going to come, but then he follows it up with, but the spirit of Antichrist is already here. Do you know what he's saying? He kind of goes on and he says, anyone that rejects the idea of Jesus is the spirit of Antichrist. It's not just a person, although I do believe that's talked about, a person. But he's saying, but the spirit of Antichrist, anyone who says, no, I reject Jesus, is the spirit of Antichrist. That's what he's talking about right here. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have, conti- they would have continued with us. But they went out, and they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. That's perfectly clear, right, everyone? Yeah, sure. You can go home and read that six more times on your own, and it'll make sense. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is antichrist and denies the Father and the Son. You see what he's saying right there? He's saying anyone who says that Jesus Christ is, is not the Christ, that Jesus is not the Christ, maybe you don't know. Christ is not Jesus' last name. When you hear Jesus Christ, that's not his first and last name. It's his name and his the title, Right? Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the, the deliverer. Anyone who denies that, John says, that is the spirit of Antichrist. Has anyone ever, have you ever thought or heard some preacher say, uh, um, there's only, you know, all, there's only one sin that can keep you out of heaven. There's just one sin, the one, one sin that's unforgivable, and you start thinking, oh man, what if I did it? what if I did that one sin? If you come and ask me later, like, what is the one sin? Because I want to make sure, I'm concerned that I might have done the one sin. I mean, I want to go to heaven and I believe in Jesus, but I, what's that one sin? If you're asking, you haven't done it. So the, the one unforgivable sin is rejecting, the, rejecting Jesus Christ. It is the blasphemy, it's called, of the Holy Spirit. Rejecting Jesus is the Christ. It's the one sin. But guess what? It's only unforgivable Like, when you die, right up until the point of your death, you have the option to accept Jesus Christ and not be guilty of the unforgivable sin. But if you reject Jesus your entire life and then die, you've committed the unforgivable sin, the only one, the only unforgivable sin. So if you're here and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, guess what? You haven't committed the unforgivable sin. Yay! (laughs) Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us eternal life. Isn't that amazing? He has promised us eternal life, the things that I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. He says, people are going to try and deceive you, but he has promised you eternal life. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as he has taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. Remain, stay there. That when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at the coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Amen. Eternal life is the promise. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this word today, for the reminder, Lord. I pray for those uh, here who've heard these words and now are challenged with the idea that we have to love one another. Oh boy. Lord, help us to look to those to our left and to our right and say, I'm called to love them selflessly. That means that I have to take my eyes off my own self, put them on you, Jesus, and see how you love and love that way. Lord, help us to do it. It's hard. Help us to do it. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, isn't in a relationship with you, hasn't asked for your forgiveness, hasn't been saved by you, Lord. I pray that they would begin to hear, Lord, that they would begin to feel the urging of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that they would feel the conviction of their sin and say, I need a Savior like that guy is talking about. Lord, I just pray that the seeds would be planted this morning. Lord, I pray that we would go out of here this morning a little bit changed than when we came in, Lord, that our eyes would be opened and we would look for the opportunities that you have for us to be the light to those in a world that is consumed with worldly affairs that are all going to end anyway, Lord. And thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.